Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and super excited about today's guest. Our guest today is an accomplished communicator, presenter, and strategist skilled in building and strengthening relationships in her organization to drive cohesive and effective operations. She's incredibly accomplished with a very long list of degrees and certifications, which we're going to explore a little bit throughout our conversation today. She's currently the learning and change manager for BNSF Logistics. Please welcome Sarah Lang. Hello, Sarah. Hi, thanks for having me today. Thank you so much for being here. And as we always do, we're going to start with the same question. What do you think is the biggest challenge you see facing the deskless workforce today? Well, in today's um, workforce, I've just noticed that there's all kinds of apps, all kinds of websites, all kinds of uh, just information out there in the world. And it's hard to figure out what to focus on. Um, and what matters uh, in your role and how to navigate just through all of those things on a day-to-day -day basis. And um, one of the things that always uh, just really gets me in the goat is that um, these desk deskless people need direction. Um, not saying that, that they're not smart or whatever, but like just tell them what they need to do their job so that they can do it quickly um, everything is so fast paced right now too, that you just have to get to the right thing in time. And if you can make that easier for them, um, I just think everyone would be happier <laughs> and the world yeah. would be a better place. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're essentially saying cut through the noise, right? And I think... Yes. I can really imagine the scenarios you were telling that quick, uh, you know, given your answer there, I, I can see the scenario where they are being bombarded by a lot of change. And I've heard from a lot of other guests on the show where they, they've been talking about, you know, change saturation and the particular effects it's having on, on the frontline workforce. And at the end of the day, like you said, they're just saying, you know, tell me what it is you need me to do and let me go do that. <laughs> and, uh, and, and we're, we're probably affecting their ability to be successful a lot by the amount of noise that they're getting. Yeah. Especially with mobile devices and applications. Um, I know like the biggest catchphrase used to be like, there's an app for that, but like, I feel like now when people hear that, they're like, there's another app for yeah. that <laughs> same thing. <laughs> Can yeah. we just use this one app? Um, so I think that that's probably like present day a challenge because I know the pandemic kind of reinvigorated mobile device usage and tracking different things. And, you know, whenever you download an app now, it asks you for your location or, you know, all of these different things like permissions and um, it can feel a little bit intrusive. And especially for these folks who are in supply chain and transportation, like it can be a little bit too much. And that's a lot of the resistance that we've seen lately is that, you know, they want to do their job and they want to do great, but they don't want to be overwhelmed and bombarded with like being tracked all the time. So some apps require you to um, have your GPS on all the time. And they don't, they don't like that. And that might seem like a really silly thing to consider when you're looking at a new application or a new service. So as a logistics company, we have our own technology that we use, um, but then we're also um, always looking for the next best thing and sourcing like what would be a great app for our carriers and our customers. And you just have to consider that nowadays that you don't want to be crying into like you're not crying but like you don't want to be um like trying to get this information from them if it's not necessary so that's some of the things that we've um gotten a lot of resistance on and even people 
wouldn't want to work with us because some of these apps are requiring them to have certain permissions on their phone. And, you know, there might be a mom, they might be a mom and pop shop and they're using their personal mobile device. And they're like, I don't want you to know that I'm eating at Chick-fil-A. Like that's not necessary. Right. Like, I don't want right. you to see where I'm at all day. Like, I don't want you to be checking up on me. Um, so I think privacy is a big issue or a challenge as well. Like people are now pushing back on that. Yeah. I think their, their concerns are fair in a lot of ways. And then on the other hand, I think, you know, a, a company that's deploying technology and deploying expensive assets and, and trying to del deliver a quality service to their customers also have a right to, to know where those assets are. And right. So there's, it's not an easy answer. Um, you know, it's certainly not black and white. I can certainly see both sides of it, but you, you raise an interesting perspective about how that impacts their ability or maybe willingness to adopt new technology. Yes. So beforehand, it was all shiny and new and cool, and they were very open to doing it. But now that there's so much of it, um, we have to consider what are the people who are servicing us, we have to consider that. So before, you know, the customer experience is much more to people in third party logistics, because you're considering, like you said, the the people that you're servicing, but then you also have to consider your carrier as a customer. And in third party logistics, that can be like a, a hard um, thing to grasp that if you're going to be in this particular area of supply chain that you have more than one customer, <laughs> you right. have the customer customer and then the carrier customer. And there's usually a back and forth of what's more important. Well, they're all important. But at the same time, you have to have both satisfied and happy to work with you in order for in order for you to make it work, in order for you to have a successful business. So that's like a new um, way of working that I had to adapt myself is that I'm actually focused on the internal people, but it's much more than that in logistics. It's you have to consider what is a carrier willing willing to do and not willing to do and that's a that can be a really big stopgap like that's actually caused us to like time out on some things that we were trying to bring up in our technology development um especially between looking at a homegrown system and we can control absolutely every single thing versus you know we can go out and source a tool that's already out there because Again, there's tons of stuff out there. People are already using it. Do we want to introduce right. a new app? You know, what's the benefit? Um, the disadvantages, well, if you're going to be sourcing a tool and that's one of their like deal breakers is you have to allow, you know, all GPS access all the time, then that can really be a, a problem. I mean, it's it's been a problem in the past and it's like you're spending all this money and you get down the road and you realize like, this isn't, you know, this may not pan out the way you, you hoped it would. So, yeah. You have uh, some unique circumstances in your example too, because it sounds like um, some of the men and women that you're describing here aren't employees of your company. And that adds another, a whole different level of consideration for how you deal with that change. So I really want to dig further into that, but I want to table it for a minute and I want to give our audience an opportunity to understand a little bit more about your background. And I'm serious when I tell you that your list of credentials is so long, your LinkedIn profile, I had to keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. So I, I'd like you um, to share with our audience a little bit about your background, uh, both you know your your education, your formal education, university experience, and and also uh, you know some of the certifications that you have that are you know super relevant to the role that you're doing today. So, tell us a little bit about you. Yeah, so um, I grew up in the old millennial generation where your parents can tell you you can do whatever you want um, and be successful at it and be a winner all the what, time. What were they thinking? <laughs> <laughs> So maybe I took it a bit too far, but um, I think I, I went down this path of wanting to be this strong woman, you know, be a doctor or a dentist or, you know, whatever, a scientist. So I went to, I went to college um, 
uh, for chemistry and I enjoyed doing it because you're working with um, different apparatus and different experiments and it requires you to have like a really a broad skill set to be a scientist. You have to know how to write. You have to know how to do critical thinking. You have to know um, how to set up an experiment. You have to know how to write about the results, whether they're good or they're bad. And you have to be able to collaborate with people, um, which I'm gonna get to that. It, the, the, the people part is the ironic thing about being in the science world. Because um, everyone thinks about you're you're a scientist, you're on a bench, you're always you know you're always by yourself you in, know, in a lab coat, weird guy in the corner, yeah, in a lab coat, yeah. you know, writing stuff down, and yeah, um, late hours, and um, so I I kept pursuing that um, because I had an opportunity from a professor who let me work in his lab in undergrad, and that's probably more common today than it was back in the early two thousands when I did it. Um, but he really, um, showed me what it's like to be a scientist and that there is a people component to it. Um, so I was able to take that experience and go to grad school. So my, ad my advisor was like, Hey, you know, every semester they're like, Hey, what are you thinking of doing when you graduate? Blah, blah, blah. Which is like now to me that I'm out of it, it's a crazy Thing to ask people at that age. Um, but I was like, well, you know, I don't really think I really want to be like a dentist or a pharmacist. Like I initially was going for pharmacy. I was like, I don't think I want to do that. Like, I don't want to count pills all day and make sure people aren't sending me fake scripts and stuff like that, you know? So I was like, he's like, well, have you considered going to grad school? And I'm like, all right, I'll go to grad school. So <laughs> That's how um, a lot of my circumstances have been by chance. Um, but I, I went to grad school and I it was like the best experience I've ever had. Um, most people talk about um, being in it was a Ph.D. program for chemistry. So, again, not something normal for women at, at my point in time. Um, but I, I was like, okay, I'm going to go, but I, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to be like the worst one there. Like I'm coming from this small college in Louisiana. People barely know about it. Like, yeah, whatever. Like I'm going to go and see how far, like see how I, you know, if I can survive like the first few weeks. Okay. Um, so I get there and again, I had the most amazing, um, research advisor. He was a tough guy. Um, he actually only typically only um, recruited international people in his lab. So I worked with um, people from Sri Lanka, uh, from China, from Thailand, from Egypt, from India, all, all different parts of India. Yeah. Um, Russia, I mean, everywhere. So I was one of the only Americans in that lab. And this was at Texas A&M? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, and, you know, I do have these science degrees and people probably look at my background and say like, wow, she has like all this science background. Like she doesn't even use it anymore. I use all of it. I use all of it every single day. I have zero regret about that. Um, but I learned really about people in grad school. I didn't learn. I mean, I, I mean, yes, I learned science. <laughs> right. <laughs> I learned about people and how they learn. People in different countries learn very differently. Some of them are focused on the books. Some of them are focused on the application. And let me tell you, Americans are focused on application. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Um, but it can be a challenge for kids who are coming from all different backgrounds, coming to undergrad. Like there are is actually a considerable number of international students that go to AM in their under for an undergraduate program. Um, so what happened was I discovered that. In grad school, I had to teach a laboratory course, and um, these kids struggled. Um, and I was like, wow, this is kind of crazy to me. Like, this is a really great school. Like, you know, you have to have like a 28 or 30, probably like a 34 at this point on your ACT or whatever. And uh, I'm like, they should really be able to you know, be able to do this and not be nervous about it. You know, they're like nervous. So you can tell they don't want to be there. Or, you know, like you're paying to go here. You're getting a scholarship to go here. Like, let's, 
let's get you through this. Let's get you through your next stage of life. You know, I, I do want, I do want to clarify the kids that you're referring to were basically just undergrads. They were four years younger than you at this time, roughly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> just wanted to make sure we were all clear on that. Yeah. Um, so I started looking at how they reacted in the classroom environment and how they reacted in the laboratory environment and how they reacted to the materials that we gave them. And I realized that the, the laboratory manual, it, it had um, a date of 1992, hadn't been mm -hmm. revised in a, what, that was like 20, you know, 20 years or so. Um, so even the language was different. Um, how you um, put things on a page is totally different now. If you look at a website from 1994 and you look at a website in 2021, it looks very different, right? So um, just everything about it, I could tell was a barrier to them getting past the class. And it was really things that I could help with. And it wasn't the content itself. It was how they could grasp the concepts and get through it. Um, and I also learned a lot about how people can learn from each other. So a lot of times in the laboratory course, you had to work alone. And there were very few times where you could work with a lab partner. Um, so there was one or two times, um, sorry, the, the guy retired, thank God. But if he listens to this, to this podcast, I'm sorry, but I did let people work in partners. <laughs> Even though you weren't supposed to. For some of these hard, for some of these hard yeah. um, labs, because it was a lot of equipment. It was, it had to be very tedious about how you dropped in the solutions into the, um, into the vessel and um, even how you, you brought, prepared the little sample to bring it to the, the other room to get it analyzed. And um, it just, when you had people to build off of, um, they could understand each other better and they could learn from each other. And then they could get, they could actually get through the experiment in laboratory time. The lab was three hours. Some of them couldn't get through it. So they couldn't get to the end and they couldn't figure, they couldn't, they didn't know what the results were and how, what to make of it. So um, I really became engrossed in that. And <laughs> um, actually all of my students every semester always had higher test scores and higher grades than any other group. So I was like, okay, maybe this is something like I need to explore. Um, and I don't know how much more you want me to talk because I have more. Well, you, you said this, meaning you really found a love for helping people learn is, is yeah. what I'm taking from that. Yeah, I did because then it translated over to, they wanted me to support the graduate students who had to teach. And those were all 95% international people. And then I was able to transfer what I figured out over to them. Um, they had number one, a language barrier to get through. Number two, um, again, the lab manual was difficult. Number three, you know, now they're having to communicate with students, making sure they're safe um, and, and all, you know, all these different things that you have to consider when you're not only working in a lab, but teaching a, a young group of students who have probably never been inside of a lab before, get through an experiment. Um, and then on top of that, what are you supposed to learn from it? Yeah. <laughs> so then I was able to break it down for these international people to be able to teach it. Um, and I, I, I grew, I have wonderful friends all over the world now. And um, some of them are now professors. Some of them are now working in labs as managers or they're business managers now. Um, and I just, man, that was worth any, any dollar I had to pay to be there yeah. for a few years. Like it was just, it was just meant for me to be there, you know, for me to figure out that, you know, maybe it's not the, the fact that I'm good at doing experiments or I'm good at the writing. Cause I got a lot of coaching from my research advisor on 
how to write for your audience. That's something I use every single day. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really what tips me off into this other world of education. So, yeah. So it looks like when you really started getting into your career, you really went right into uh, a role in, in training and instructional design. Am I understanding that right? Yes, that's correct. So I have um, in College Station, there's a bunch of other businesses and they're open to hiring, you know, students, obviously, that would be pretty warm and open about that. Right. Um, so I found a part time position at this small company and <clears throat> they hired me on to do like very basic you know, testing, you know, come go and view this e-learning course, make sure the language is correct, the grammar is correct, make sure nothing's broken, like click on all the buttons and make sure it's working properly. Um, they had a lot of government contracts. So it was, um, you know, they had certain restrictions in rules on how they built their courses and things like that. So um, did a lot more like quality control, technical side. And I grew into that um, e-learning developer role um, we had a hard time finding contractors who could use the e-learning tools back at the time. I mean, this is back in 2012 when Articulate was like barely there. Like I went to one of the first, um, e was it e-learning brothers? No, Yukon Learning. I went to one of the first Yukon Learning trainings in Austin, Texas in 2000. 13 um, to learn about articulate and from there I just said you know you know what I'm just going to try it I'm going to do it um, they paid for me to go so um, as we kept working with some of these contractors I was learning from them as well yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, learning how they use the tool um, you know and from there I moved into more of that e-learning role and then I moved into um, being that instructional designer from analysis all the way to delivery, uh, which is partially why I entered the Purdue program to learn more about like, what is all of this like instructional design background, you know, anal you know, analysis, like I already did that in the science world with, you know, researching, ex you know, what kind of experiments I'm going to do, but how does this translate into you know, the people side and, and the, you know, educational theories and motivational theories. And how do you assess that someone know, really knows what they learned or are they adapting it? Are they using it in their role? You know, how do I, how do I, how do I take that and make sure I'm building tool possible for them to learn from? So that was a wonderful opportunity. Um, I had a great, again, I, I've just been really lucky with my managers <laughs> that I've had um, because they, they were able to see that I really wanted to know more and do more and make things right and make things easy for people. This seems to be a common theme with the podcast guests that we've had and you represent that well, which is number one, just an, an absolute passion for what you do. And in this case, it obviously is, you know, very focused on, on learning and then just a strong empathy for people and really understanding what they need and, and looking to make sure that you're doing your best as a professional to serve the needs of, of your colleagues, you know, your, your key stakeholders. And um, so it's, it's exciting to hear you, you talk about that. I, I noticed in your current role, then it looks like you had a series of instructional design roles where you were actually building learning uh, content, but you've also now added change management into your your role and responsibilities. Tell me a little bit about how that happened. So a lot of times in my learning role or my instructional design role, you had to understand the audience first in order to figure out what they needed. And a lot of times that training product was for a technology change. It was for a new way of working, a new business process. Um, all of these things that really they all had this trend of a change that triggered that learning event or that product to be developed. Um, so I, I always tell people now that I know what change management is, like the formal definition and the pro sci, you know, professional science research behind it that 
I've been doing change management for a long time. <laughs> right. Um, Just without the moniker, you know, without calling it right. that. Yeah. Right. So in Trinity Industries, where I worked is where I, my eyes were open to that whole change side with regards to um, there's a huge, crazy business, business growth going on. Um, so we have to get people like up and running as quickly as possible. And we have to hire all these people. We have to make sure that they can, you know, be, be as productive as possible. And um, within the first 90 days and, you know, everyone has this, like, we need to get them onboarded within 90 days so that they can really hit the ground running. And um, so my, my manager there had this background in, um, it was like medical device um, documentation. So it was very strict um, uh, documents that she had to write for um, the employees to be qualified <laughs> to perform the task to build the medical device, but then also for a trainer to be qualified to train someone else on using that medical device. So she had a very um, serious you know, documentation background and how you are supposed to draw your process maps and how you're supposed to write certain things to make it as clear as possible and that everyone can follow the exact same step. Like it was a very, it was, again, opened my eyes to the, a new world of, you know, how the world works, I guess, like what's sure medical devices and manufacturing and um so from there we had to document what was going on what what the business processes were at trinity industries and then from there build an onboarding program so that whoever was filling these roles knew exactly what they were supposed to do yeah. step by step you know what were the impacts to the information they put into the workflow system who's receiving it? Why do you have to have this dot here for this job code or repair code or, you know, whatever? Um, why does the system lock me down if I don't upload this? Um, you know, there is lots of controls too in, in the rail car manufacturing and repair world. It was highly regulated. So, um, we, we built that from the ground up and that was like one of my favorite parts of my career, I think, um, was I had to sit down and talk with managers and, and all, all the roles involved in what do they currently do? What exactly do you do? Even asking that question seems like it should give you a simple answer, but this theme I come across all the time. It's a complicated process to describe something in simple terms like it, it takes a lot of time up front and a lot of conversation and a lot of communication and alignment to like really document in as few words as possible what you're supposed to be doing or how something works um it, and that's and that's where maybe my science background came in because I always had to analyze what is this compound? What are, what are the restrictions? What are the safety issues? Um, what is its possibilities for, you know, mixing it with this other white powder and making it something else, you know, like, and then because it has to be repeatable, if I want to publish it, how can I write it so that someone in Germany or someone in Canada or someone at, you know, Caltech, could repeat it and verify that my experiment is sound and I can put that into a journal. Yeah. So I think that's where that, you know, connection came in, but really I enjoyed talking to people because we get people in a room. It's, it, and it's, that's the experiment, right? You get the people in the room, they work together every single day. Okay. They work together every single day, but you intentionally get them into a room and say, Hey, um, what is your process for, um, walk me through what happens when a customer comes to you and they need to lease a, you know, a certain number of rail cars from us. So, you know, sales side or account, you know, account side starts talking and then you got the contracts people talking and then they start 
coming into conflict because they're like, no, that's not how we do that. No, that's, that's wrong. You should do it this way. You should do it that way. And so then that's my, my time to come in and say, okay, so knowing that we, <laughs> we have to tell people how to do this, yeah, let's, let's agree. Let's come to an alignment on what the standard is moving forward. And those moments are like the best reward for me personally, because people come to an agreement on how things are going to be streamlined moving forward. And it reduces this conflict. It reduces any question or any doubts moving forward of how something is supposed to work. So they could go back to their offices and be in totally different sides of the building and they could still be in agreement and alignment and, and keep things moving smoothly. And that then translates to the customer experience. So the customer, if everything's streamlined internally, the customer is going to hear the same message. The customer is going to have the same experience if they talk to, you know, Sally at contracts or they talk to somebody um, else across the building in contracts or they talk to somebody in finance or they talk to somebody in the repair side. Um, you know, you know, well, how do, you know, how do I know what, um, what I have to pay to repair this? Um, why do I have to pay to repair this rail car when you own it? You know, and they understand the contracts, how they work. They can go in and say, well, hey, look, under your contract that you signed, your lease contract, this is what it reads. And they're going to give the same answer every time if, if you did it right. So you, you talked a, a combination there about some of the, the how those uh, folks need to do things, but you also touched on something else I'd, I'd like to bring back a little bit, which is the why behind a lot of that change. And I think that's really a, a fundamental thing that's missing in typical digital transformation initiatives, or at least those that don't go so well. And something that I've learned from all of my new friends and that are change management practitioners about just the communication process. So I'm curious to get your take on how you solve for that communication challenge of explaining the why, particularly with frontline workers as it involves digital transformation, how, what would you recommend folks do to really address that? And, and how have you done that previously? Yes, so in the example that I just gave, um, it, it was a little bit easier to manage the change because the new people who come in, they don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, they come in knowing they have their 90 day period to, you know, adopt to the job or, you know, you might be sent to a different department or, you know, whatever. Do, do they um, know that they have 90 days is I, you know, that they have 90 days, but do you communicate that? Um, I mean, yeah, I knew, I knew when I, even when I came in, I had a 90 day period. Um, okay. So yeah, you have a 90 day period um, where they're going to onboard you and they're going to make sure that you are, you know, you're good to go can do the job. Very rarely were people like, oh, you suck. You got to go. Right. Like very, but like, it's like a, hey, FYI, there's technically from HR policy, a 90 day period. Right. So that yeah. maybe that had something to do with it to, to make sure that you can do your job correctly and pay attention. Um, but my recommendation, you know, in that situation is um, if you have a, if you have a situation, which typically you do of seasoned people at your company, uh, middle, middle of the road for three or four years in, and then you have brand new people and you have a change coming. (laughs) Um, you, you really have to sit down and do that change impact for every single, every single role. And then down to that individual level. I know that sounds really time consuming, but I promise there is a benefit. There's a benefit to doing that. There's a reward to doing to doing that due diligence and taking that time to try to unravel everything ahead of of deploying that change. Um, so really focusing on the change impact, what might be the points that they're resisting um, adopting a tool or adopting a new way of working, and what are some tactics to you know you know they're going to come up so think about, you know, how you can um, work with that or how you can start to get them to adopt. The second thing I would say is managers are 
critical in making the change happen. Um, as far as pro-sci research goes, um, those are the people who provide you with that certification and put you through that training. And they have all years and years of um, research uh, based on what, what is likely to reduce the barrier to change, who do employees want to hear from when a change is happening. Um, the biggest thing is the biggest um, impact to an employee at the desk level is to hear from their manager and to get follow-up from their manager and to be able to give feedback to their managers, know that they're being heard and that if there are, you know, with any change, you know, software updates, there's gonna be a glitch, there's gonna be an issue um, that they can be heard and the, that the manager um, can follow up and take care of those things for them. So basically the manager has their back, um, but then from a leadership side, the manager has to be bought into the change. So the why I think is probably the most important for the manager. Second most important is the employee level because the manager has to sell it too. They have to be really bought into it. Otherwise they're gonna be like, hey, this change is coming just FYI, but you know, it's fine. I'm not gonna pay attention to it, but just if they ask, let them know that I told you that we're doing this now. Okay. Right. It's a checking the box exercise at that yeah. point. And it's not, it's not true full engagement. Right. Right. And so my, my recommendation from a leadership perspective is to, when you're working with the manager to get their buy-in, you need to um, be able to show the benefit to them and the benefit to their employee, um, which to me, most of the time, I can see the benefit of why we're changing certain technology. Um, but it does have a stigma of, oh, well, everything's going to get automated. So my role is going to go away, you know. Um, so getting that, getting the why to the manager and get them to buy into that why um, and connecting that to the benefit to the employee. How is this going to make it easier for me? Um you know, moving forward, you know, what is my day going to look like? Um, you know, how is this going to remove some of the challenges we currently have? Um, and then it would be to break it down. So I don't know if you've heard of this approach, but a crawl, crawl, walk, run method sure. um, that works for us. Um, that's the method that that works, particularly where I'm working right now. Other other companies are, they're, they're great with just full, full send on anything. <laughs> yeah. You know, somebody I met with the other day, uh, used an expression that I hadn't heard before, which was minimum viable proficiency. So we, we talk about MVP as a minimum viable product, but, uh, I, I thought that was a really interesting way to think about it is, you know, what, because it's exactly what you just said be, with crawl, walk and run, we don't necessarily need to go from zero to running pace all at one time. And perhaps the, the better path for our learners and the users of this new technology would be to have, have a, an easier onboarding, right? We, we don't have to be at hundred percent proficiency. They don't need to know how to do every single transaction on the first day. And can we actually make this experience better for them and allow them to be successful in increments over time? And will that ultimately lead to better adoption of the overall enterprise system? Right. So it's not, it sounds like different terminology, but saying something very same, similar to what you're yeah, talking about. Same concept. And it also um, aligns really well with agile methodology and technology sure. production. Right. So um, then they'll get used to that pattern of there's going to be a little bit, a little bit going on all the time. Right. So um, one of the biggest barriers is just with anything is getting people comfortable with knowing that there will be a little something tweaking going on all the time. So once we saw that where I work now, it's it's just taken things from like this difficult to ooh, just a little bit, a little bit more, you know, um, and now they 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 know what to expect. And from a change perspective, have have as repeatable of a process as possible. So every single time, if if they're the CEO or the VP of ops or whoever is going to come down to them and say, hey, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is what I need you to do. 
you have that same exact approach every time. It's like kind of like your daily, like it's like a daily schedule. In the morning, gotta have breakfast. Then gotta have lunch. Then you gotta have dinner. It's gonna be like that every time with the change. This is what we're doing for breakfast. This is what we're doing for lunch. This is what we're doing for dinner. Yeah, that's a really interesting way for you to describe that because what, what I'm hearing from you is we're going to have consistency with change. Yeah. Right. So it, it gives a, a framework so that there are things that are predictable for the people that are on the receiving end of this. And I think that's one of the things that when we think about the men and women in the field and how they are impacted by the technology, um, you know, initiatives that, that the organization has, they have been most of the time, they've not been as in the loop as some of us have been because they're out doing their job and, and we're concocting all these new innovations that we want to bring out to the field. Right. And they feel they tend to feel very uncomfortable about the unknown and, and what's happening. And so to give them something that's more predictable, even if in, in your description, it's just that framework for how we're going to communicate, how we're going to release the consistency that we'll use with these new releases and things like that. That sounds like a, a really powerful way to bring something that is consistent and predictable to them, even though the underlying uh, environment is going to be changing a little bit over time. Right. So for example, we in our kind of like an example of the communication that would be repeatable that I found works is the sponsor announces if it's a, depending on how big the changes sponsor announces, then employee can expect to hear from their manager on what exactly they need to do and when they need to start adapting it. And then the third, the third part is consistently getting a check in from your manager. How's it going? You know, until you have reached that success threshold. So I think that person who is talking about that minimum viable proficiency, yeah. we all have a hope and dream about this change, okay? But let's be real. Let, let's talk about what, what we expect to really happen day-to-day -day basis moving forward. You know, like we want everyone to use this tool 100% of the time, but realistically, let's talk about what is good enough for the organization. I know people are probably like cringing at me saying that, but um, it, it you have to look at things realistically sometimes because it's people, they're all on a different page. They're, they're all gonna even adopt at a different time. Like some people are early adopters. They doesn't bother them one bit. Other people like, it's hard. It's gonna take them three months to, to open the new tool. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's gonna take some time. So um, what is, what do you consider that, that threshold of, okay, we can, we can, you know, lay off of that topic. We can, we can let that, we can let that marinate and keep, you know, we're good with that. And then later on, you know, when we have the other little change coming up, we can re, you know, reinforce that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, many times the alternative is that we try to cram it all down their throat all the time and we get zero or very little engagement, right? Mm -hmm. So if we instead shift our thinking and say, hey, maybe we can actually ease the burden so that there's not quite so much change all at one time and earn their trust through them having success with this new system and this new process and things like that. And then we can begin to layer on additional capabilities over time. Ultimately, we're achieving better results than we would have in the other way. So I, I think, you know, we have to reframe what our expectations are mm -hmm. and understand that by kind of forcing so much at one time where it's actually counterproductive for them and ultimately counterproductive for the other stakeholders who are really hoping to make this change be successful. Yeah. So in the, in the science world, how that translates is when you're thinking of an entire experimental design, you have multiple little experiments for that whole that whole project right so you work on little bits and pieces at a time and typically i i deal with the low-hanging fruit i'm like okay well i'm gonna go look at step three and make sure that i can get that working really great that and then i'm gonna go back to step to step one like you don't have to start in the beginning but you do have to do like kind of like proof of concept validate verify and so that you can get a b c d and e you got results for the whole, the whole thing. Um, and I think that maybe like subconsciously, that's what I was thinking of, you know, whenever I, I started doing change management with people is that, okay, well, we have five different steps. 
Um, yeah, it may not make sense right now to only focus on number three, but that's like the the least crazy, you know, change in this whole process. So why don't we just focus on that and, and get a win there and build that trust? That way, when some of the harder sticky parts come, you know, they're, they're at least going to have that trust that we're going to get through it. We're going to figure it out. And things are going to eventually, you know, smooth over. If you start with the really hard step first, it can be difficult to build that trust, you know? Yeah. So kind of how I think of it. You, you touched on this earlier, but I'd like to ask you to expand on a little bit, which is um, how customers, external customers can sometimes feel the impact of change management gone awry internally. Mm -hmm. Um, th those are my words. You didn't say it that way, but I'm. Uh, but you you were essentially alluding to the impact that change management has on the external customer experience, and, and I would just love to hear you talk a little bit more about that because I think that's really really important. That it's ultimately, I think sometimes we maybe downplay employee experience and uh, in favor of a bias toward customer experience, but that overlooks the fact that an improved employee experience which ties to change management will ultimately probably yield a better customer experience. So I just love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point. And I com I'm completely in agreement with that. Like everyone talks about take care of your employee and the rest will come. Like it's true. I think um, we've had reduced um, turnover since we started using this repeatable method um, we've had, uh, people who are more bought in from a management perspective to continue to take some of these changes in stride moving forward. Um, and even some of them have a, a voice now, they, they're regularly practicing their voice and bringing issues up to the team to see if and how they can be resolved. Um, but yeah, it all, you know, if, if the employee is happy with how the process works, and they don't have to continue to do all this manual stuff and workarounds to make the customer happy and it's streamlined, then the customer isn't going to feel um, the pressure or they're not going to have as many um, questions asked to them, like really simple intentional things. Like if you only have to call a customer one time or say the customer calls you in the logistics world and they say, hey, I... I've got a load I need you to transport and it's, you know, X, Y, Z product, blah, 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 blah. And they have to do that every single day. Yeah. <laughs> Versus let's automate the system and we're going to give them i I'm just making this up as an sure. example. Sure. We're going to automate the, the, the customer intake system. Okay. And we're going to get their typical, you know, what's their typical, you know, they always call us, they call us once a week for the same exact thing, for the same exact equipment, and they, they usually prefer the same exact carrier. Why don't we just give them like a little, you know, button they can press, they can go in the customer portal, press a little button, and then you can hear from your account manager and they'll just give you a call and say like, hey, I saw you put this in, we're getting it ready. And it's like this nice, lovely, positive conversation because you don't have to sit there and ask them, the same five questions every week, like just little bitty things like that, um, they add up and they make the customer experience better. And that's really where I see a trend in how does the employer, the desk level fit in with all these technology changes? Well, just because things are getting automated doesn't mean that your role is gonna go away. Your role is gonna be more people, people-faced. You're gonna get back to working with people so that you don't have to deal with the minute, mundane, day-to-day, -day, manual data entry processes. Yeah. That's something that you talked about at the beginning of this conversation, which is the user's perception that everything is bad about, about this new technology. So, you know, they're kind of climbing up our butt. They're, you know, looking at our location. They're tracking everything that we're doing. And it, it does feel... I can imagine it feels very intrusive. Um, 
On the other hand, I think there are legitimate reasons for some of that. And many of them are truly designed to make it easier for the user, right? So there was a, a trucking company that I worked with one time, a transportation uh, firm that actually built geofencing into their application so that the users didn't have to acknowledge an arrival and a departure from a, a given site. Mm-hmm. Now, it does require location tracking be turned on to the applications in order to enable that, but it made the user experience like so much better for the software because the user could now just confirm something. They didn't have to remember to click the button because in the past, if they forgot when they arrived at the depot, then their wait time at the depot wasn't being calculated correctly. If they didn't say, hey, we're here, hey, now I'm leaving, that time calculation that was so important in that uh, scenario wasn't being done correctly because of user error. So in that case, you know, it was an opportunity to improve the overall experience, but I know users can sometimes be put off with that. And I think that's what I think our role, all of us, as you said earlier, we all have a role as change managers in this process is to help them understand what's in it for them Mm -hmm. so that, um, you know, it may still feel intrusive to some of them. Um, But, you know, most of the time, the men and women that are doing their jobs correctly um, and aren't trying to cheat the system in some way, I have found, uh, tend to be very open to that, right? Um, it seems to me, my observations have been that the men and women that are most concerned about that, uh, most concerned about that intrusiveness may have something to hide, but the others that I've spoken with firsthand, uh, recognize that most of those capabilities actually make their lives a little bit easier and they can connect the dots to, yeah, I understand why the business would need this. Mm-hmm. Sure. But, but, but as you said, we, we've got to, we have a responsibility as the implementers and change managers to really communicate that to them and uh, make sure that they understand that what's, what's in it for them. Yep, for sure. And, you know, in some cases, you know, there is a better option, you know, and if someone figures out that better option, like geofencing, for example, then they're going to, they're always going to say, oh, no, I don't want your app. I don't want your app. I don't want my, my GPS turned on all the time. Like, sorry. It's just the little, the little things that, you know, are going to be an impact to to businesses. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation and we're, we're already coming up uh, to the end of the time here. I was really uh, excited to hear you connect the dots between a, a very heavy, you know, science background and yet, you know, loop it around to, uh, to the human impact and, and the empathy that, you know, you bring to, uh, to doing what you're doing today. So thank you for sharing that. I think it was a pretty unique perspective. I, I don't think I've heard before, but it actually makes uh, just a ton of sense and, and you've enlightened me and I'm sure you have with the audience as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Good. Well, I hope uh, the audience has enjoyed this conversation as much as I had today. And uh, if so, please share and rate the podcast. Five-star ratings help ensure that it gets promoted to other professionals like you that are out there innovating on the front lines. And this podcast is sponsored by Skillful, the mobile digital adoption platform for deskless and frontline workers. Visit the website at skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. And we're always looking for new guests on the show. So if you, the listeners, or you, the guests, Sarah, uh, know somebody else that's out there innovating on the front lines, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, Please reach out to me on LinkedIn and share your story or their story. And uh, we'd love to line them up as another guest on the show. So we'll see you on the next episode. And thanks again, Sarah, for joining us today.